The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Scholars, theologians have called this section the seven signs of John because of the series of miracles. Again, the wedding at Cana being miracle number one. Later on, we're son in chapter 1000, in John chapter 6. We're going to see Jesus walking on water again in John chapter 6. We're going to see the healing of the blind man who was blind from birth in chapter 9. And we're going to see one of my favorite miracles, the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. So again, a series of miracles, and these miracles are referred to as signs in verse 11 of chapter 2 of John. And they're signs because they point to Jesus like a sign would, and they reveal his glory, they reveal aspects about his mission and his character. In other words, there are messages in every miracle. Let me say it again. There are messages that the Lord is communicating through each of these seven miracles. So our goal today, aided by the help of the Holy Spirit, is to hear the messages that the Lord has in this wonderful wedding event miracle. So let me draw your attention to verse 1. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. It's interesting. We believe that every word of scripture is inspired by God. And chapter 2, verse 1 starts with these words. On the third day. On the third day. Now, most likely this is in reference to the third day after the call of Philip and Nathaniel which Pastor Colin walked us through in the last couple sermons. But we can also, because again, every word is inspired by the Lord, see symbolic significance in that term, on the third day. When I say on the third day, what miracle comes to mind? What happened on the third day? Jesus was resurrected from the tomb. So it's interesting, it's almost a foreshadowing that's going on here, because this miracle is going to be connected to this idea of resurrection, or transformation, or new life. And here we have, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited To the wedding, the wedding probably involved either relatives or close friends of Jesus' family. So this isn't just your regular wedding. Uh, Jesus' family is probably intimately connected to the individuals who are holding this wedding ceremony. How do we know that? Well, one, we've got Mary, Jesus' mother. She's in attendance. Number two, we got a personal invitation that is extended to Jesus. Of course, Jesus comes with an entourage. All the disciples haven't been chosen yet, but those who are with him, they accompany him to this wedding. And thirdly, in a little bit, we're going to see this. We Mary, when there's a crisis that breaks out at the wedding, Mary responds. She involves herself. So she has access to that information, again, probably because of their close relationship connection with the family of the bridegroom. Now, within these first two verses, and go ahead and look at them again, we already have a few interesting details that I think are worth uh, mentioning. First detail I believe that's worth mentioning is that Jesus actually attends a wedding. God shows up, God in flesh, 
shows up at a wedding, which can be seen as a divine affirmation of marriage itself. He could have declined, but he shows up. There he is, God in flesh, participating in a wedding event. We see also in Mark chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus affirming the institution of wedding, of marriage. So we know that Jesus endorses marriage. Question, have you invited Jesus to your wedding? Better yet, have you invited him afresh, anew? Have you sent an invitation to Jesus to join you in your marriage? Hmm. Here's another interesting detail. There's no mention of Joseph. None. For a matter of fact, at the conclusion in verse 12, it mentions that Jesus has siblings, that his mother, his disciples, and Jesus, they head out from here. But again, no mention of Joseph. Most scholars believe that Joseph had died by this point. For a matter of fact, the last time we see him mentioned in Scripture, Jesus is just 12 years old. We see that in Luke chapter 2, verse 41, where Jesus is basically at the temple. His parents are scrambling, trying to find him, and he announces to them that he's doing his father's bidding. He's 12 years old. The Scripture says his parents are in tow. But that is the last time, in the Bible at least, that we see Joseph. We know Jesus is probably around 30 years old at the time of this event, the wedding at Cana. So here's the deal. For those of us who've lost a parent, for those of us who've had to comfort grieving mothers, who've attended the funerals of our fathers, our loved ones. For those of us who felt the weight of responsibility for younger siblings, and we know that Jesus has younger siblings. He's the oldest son, a place of responsibility in his family. For those of us who fall into that category, listen. We have a Savior who intimately understands. He's been touched by that. He's walked that walk. And as somebody who's lost a dad and family members early, and as a young man, this is encouraging to me. We see those interesting details just in the first couple verses. Now look at verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now listen, running out of wine within this culture would have brought great embarrassment and shame to the bridegroom's family. It would have been scandalous. Again, for a matter of fact, scholars point out that it is possible to actually sue the bridegroom and the family for failing to provide adequately for their guest at a wedding. So not only was it a great embarrassment, there could have been some financial ramifications connected to this. Needless to say, it is a crisis. It is not a good thing in this context, within this culture, to run out of wine which explains why Mary sprung into action and she makes a beeline for her son and brings it up to him. Now, this is an interesting and pivotal question to ask, so I want you to listen. What exactly was Mary asking Jesus to do? What was she asking? 
Now keep in mind, we have no evidence that Jesus had worked any miracles up to this point or prior to this event. There's no evidence. So if she's asking for a miracle, what was she basing this on? Interesting. Some think, and by the way, this is a question that's been asked before. Some think that Mary was only reporting the situation to Jesus. And the venerable John Calvin, in his commentaries, actually suggests that Mary's asking Jesus to go to the crowd and exhort them and encourage them on behalf of the bridegroom to save the bridegroom embarrassment. I don't necessarily agree, nor do I think the scripture actually shows that. For matter of fact, if we look at verse 4, it seems to imply more. It's fair to say that out of context, verse 4 can be somewhat confusing. So my desire this morning is to clarify that for us. Before we do that, let me offer a couple key facts for you all to think about. Number one, Mary had probably been witness to the events of the preceding days, or at least she was made aware of them, which, of course, remember what happened in the preceding days. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, initiating his public ministry. I'm sure if Mary wasn't there, she at the very least was aware of that. Secondly, Mary knew the supernatural events surrounding Jesus' birth. Mary knew she was a virgin. She understood what happened with the birth story. She had a front row seat to the birthing of the Messiah, Jesus. Thirdly, Mary was keenly aware of the prophetic words of the angel and of Simeon and Anna in the temple during Jesus' dedication. She had heard before just the fact that her son, in short, she had good reason to believe that her son was Messiah. And she's probably drawing on this unique insight to intercede to her son on behalf of the bridegroom. You see, Mary has been waiting for this moment for 30 years, hiding this in her heart. She's the first to know about the real identity of her son. And she's now ready to help launch her son into his messiahship. And so she comes to Jesus. And what does Jesus say to his mom? Look at verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Kind of odd, right? This is not an outright denial of her request. Instead, this is Jesus knowing Mary's thoughts, cutting right to the heart of the matter, which he often does. You'll see this often in Scripture. Someone will ask him a question, and he gets right to the point because he knows what's going on in the heart and mind of that individual. You see... Jesus moved and acted according to his father's will. But Mary wanted him to reveal himself publicly according to her timing. There's a distinction there. God's will, God's timing. Mary's will, albeit I'm sure her motives were good. She wanted to bless this family. She wanted to see her son be her son, 
But nonetheless, she's out of touch with the purpose and plan of the Father. How often have I attempted to impose my will on the Father? I see some of y'all nodding your heads. All of us, right? Now, to better understand this, let's look at two things. First of all, let me say this. Jesus was not being rude to his mother, okay? He's not being rude. For a matter of fact, referring to Mary as woman is a term of respect and affection. In today's vernacular, it would be like saying ma'am. And we see this as Jesus' normal and polite way of addressing women in general. We see it in Matthew 15, 28, in Luke 13, 12, in John 4, 21. Again, he's not dissing his mother. Secondly, when Jesus refers to his hour, right? My hour has not yet come. He's using a word that occurs multiple times in the book of John. It occurs in John chapter 730. It occurs in John chapter 8, verse 20. It occurs in John chapter 12, verse 23 and 27. It occurs in John chapter 13, verse 1. And when you look at all of these verses together to try to get an idea of what the... By the way, this is how you do it, by the way. You use scripture to interpret scripture, okay? We're not trying to guess and come up with wild theories. We're using the Bible to interpret the Bible. And when you look at the whole of the scriptures, especially in the book of John, as it relates to the idea of the hour of Jesus, it's probably here referencing the period that is initiated by his arrest and death and consummated by the resurrection. So here's what he's actually saying to his mother. Mom, ma'am, why do you involve me? I'm not ready to die. Mom, why do you involve me? I'm not ready to die. That, of course, makes sense if Mary's motive is to kind of force to initiate his messiahship. He's saying, Mom, it's not time for me yet. Again, he sees the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. God sees the heart. He's politely pointing out that he follows God, the Father's timing, not Mary's. And that this is not his time to reveal himself as Messiah. But I want you to notice, please notice, look at verse 5. Look at Mary's response. Does she walk away dejected? Does she hang her head? Does she scold him for being disrespectful? course not. Here's what she does. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Listen, she expectantly yields her will to the will of her son, the Messiah. And she turns to the servants There's an attitude check, a perspective change, and she says, do whatever he asks. If only that were our disposition, right? Whatever you say, Lord, whatever you ask of me, Lord, I'll do. If only, right? That should be our aspiration. That should be our heart's desire. That should be where you and I live, right? Hmm. This is so much like us in prayer. Does this sound familiar? We come to the Lord with divided motives, or we lack understanding, and the Lord graciously redirects us. Isn't that interesting? Correcting our perspective, calling us back into his throne room to yield our will to his 
And often he answers our prayers in a way that we never expected. I'm not sure Mary was expecting what's about to take place. But she has an attitude check and yields. Also, there's something about Mary's persistence. The fact that she's holding on to hope. She trusts in the goodness of her son, in the graciousness of her son. And listen to Luke 11:5 as it relates to you and me. Again, these are the words of Christ. Then he said to them, he's telling a story about prayer. Suppose one of you has a friend, goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Verse eight, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. I don't know about y'all. I've been praying for some of the same things for 30 years. And I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep knocking. I'm going to keep seeking. I'm going to keep asking because I believe in the generosity and the goodness of my God. I have hope in his mercies that are new every morning. So when I'm thinking of my family members who don't know him yet, I'm not despairing. I believe. I trust. I set my affections on things above. Mary, same disposition here. It took her a bit to get here, as it often does with us. But here she is. Do whatever he says. She's not giving up hope that her son's going to come through. Look at verse 6. Nearby stood some stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Uh, significantly here, uh, these stone jars held water for Jewish purification rituals. They would wash their hands and their feet. They cleaned the utensils at these different events. And all of this, again, was connected to kind of the sacrificial system. It was intended to reflect their pursuit of righteousness, but again, their focus was on ritual. Their focus was on the external. It says each jar held 20 to 30 gallons, which means the total volume of liquid involved was somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons. That's a lot. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Hmm. Then he told them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. We don't know if it was turned into wine while it was still in the jars or during the pouring. It really doesn't matter, but we do know that water was turned into wine. By the way, this is not in any way Jesus endorsing drunkenness. It isn't. That's a misunderstanding, a misappropriation of this particular section of Scripture. You have to look at the whole of Scripture to understand that. It says, He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Interesting. I love that last section. This underscores the hope that we have in Christ, that he is saving the best for last. He will have the last word as it relates to your life, and that word will be good. 
And I believe when I was preparing this, a lot of this, I feel like the Lord, the Holy Spirit gave me because there would be folk here specifically who needed to hear some of this. And this one stands out, Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The Lord is going to finish what he started. He is faithful. He is faithful. Circumstances, maybe people around us, they shift. They adjust. But God is steady. He's a rock. Our strong tower, a fortress. Our deliverer. He never fails. He never quits. He hasn't given up on you. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you came this morning feeling like you've been given up on. Well, I'm here to say in the name of Jesus, you haven't been given up on. You haven't. He's going to finish what he starts. He is faithful even when we aren't. He is faithful. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. Again, think of a sign as pointing. Through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, this miracle is overflowing with messages So what I want to do, briefly if possible, is I want to submit to you three. Two, we're just going to give an overview, again, because I feel like the Holy Spirit gave me some insights for some of us or for all of us. So I want to just kind of reflect on two. But the last message, I believe, that's in this miracle, I really genuinely hope it applies to all of us, that this is the Lord... um, speaking to us through his word. But first, in terms of messages, this miracle represents, and I think this is the most common theme you'll hear preached when you hear this message about the wedding at Cana, that this miracle represents the transition from the old covenant with its emphasis on external ceremonial cleansing with the new covenant, which provides transformation through grace by the shed blood of Jesus. In other words, Salvation is not received, or salvation is received, it is not achieved. Okay? So there is this old ceremonial way, and this distinguishes our Christian faith from other religions. We're not offering self-help. It's not what this is. We're talking about transformation, miraculous, supernatural, the changing, actually, the scriptures say in John 3, you'll hear it, I'm sure, in the weeks to come, Jesus says you must be born again. He actually removes from us our stony heart, replaces. That's the, the message here. Listen to Galatians 2.19. Galatians 2.19 says, Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness put, could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So there is this transition that takes place with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus we're not, only, we're not under the ceremonial external focus anymore. 
There's an impartation of grace through Christ taking on himself our sin, suffering on our behalf, and offering us his life. So our lives are now hid in Jesus. We are brand new. You are a new creature, a new creation in Christ. And it's not based on your works or your rituals. It's based on what Jesus did and your faith in him. Second quick message, the Christian life is to be marked by abundant supernatural joy symbolized by the abundance of wine produced by Jesus in this miracle. Here's my question to you. Are you known for your joy? I didn't say happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. Happiness is things are going well for me, so I'm happy. Joy is very different than that. There's a supernatural element to joy because it's based not in our circumstances. It's based in him, in whose we are, in who he is. And because of whose we are, in whose, who he is, the circumstances of life, yes, were impacted by them, but they're held in proper balance. It's not everything. So yeah, we're going to suffer, and I'm not in any way downplaying suffering, but that suffering is nothing compared to this grace and provision into my future hope that is in Jesus. So there's a joy in that. Nehemiah 8.10, Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food, sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord, those of us who know Jesus, that joy is strength. Listen to John fifteen ten. If you keep my commands, Jesus speaking, You will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's command and remain in his love. Verse 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So Jesus's joy is in us. That's radical. I mean, that's why you have persecuted folk in persecuted countries who are filled with life in the midst of their torture and persecution. We have a brother here in this church who spent time in a Russian and a Soviet prison. And what he shared was what ultimately drew him to the Lord, where there were some believers in that prison. Because under the Soviet Union, if you were a believer, you went to jail. And he said, he said, he saw these two, believe they were Lutheran priests, and they were always smiling and full of joy. And this is a man in our church who up to that point didn't even have access to a Bible, but saw the joy, and it drew him. Isn't that powerful? I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Okay, now, last but not least, and this is where I want to park for just a few because this is where I believe the Lord has what the Lord has given me um, for us. Third message, there's a call to intercession, intercessory prayer that is both vital to the work of the church and precious to the heart of Jesus. You see, Mary is a model of intercession in this story. When you look up the word to intercede in Greek, and of course you all know that the New Testament is written in Greek and Aramaic, so getting back to the original language helps us to get to the ultimate meaning of words. When you look at the word intercede in Greek, because I've heard all kinds of folk talk about intercession, standing in the gap, and all that's good, 
But listen to what the word means. This is it. To plead on behalf of someone else. Let me say it again. To intercede is to plead someone else's case on behalf of another. It's exactly what Mary was doing. She went to Christ Jesus on behalf of the bridegroom. She's interceding. And that is a ministry that the Lord has called all of us to. We were conversating yesterday. You know, is there a specific office for intercession or intercessory prayer? And we couldn't find it. There's a gift of faith. But it seems that prayer is a calling that all of us are called into. It's a ministry that applies to anyone who's a believer. You are called, you've been enlisted by Jesus to intercede. Now, let's look at some verses. You got your Bibles ready. Here we go. Of course, Jesus models intercession for us. In Luke 22, uh, verses 31 and 32. Turn there, if you will. Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. So you're going that way in your scripture, in your Bible. And here we've got a kind of popular, our our well-known story. Uh, Jesus um, addressing here. Peter, Simon Peter. And look what he says in verse 31, Luke 22. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, all of you, as wheat. Look at verse 32. But I have prayed for you. How about that, Simon? That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So here we have Jesus praying for an individual disciple. Letting that disciple know, I have prayed for you. Interesting. Look at John 17. This whole chapter is very rich. Because we we get a peek into Jesus' prayer life, John chapter 17. And I'm not trying to preach a sermon that we're going to preach down the road, but we have to look at this. And what I want to do is just quickly draw your attention to verse 9, because you'll notice Jesus is praying for his disciples here. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given to me, for they are yours. Then look at verse 20. Now Jesus shifts his prayer focus, and look who he's praying for. My prayer is not for them, meaning his disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Guess who that is? Hold a mirror up if you're a believer. See who's looking back at you. Jesus actually praying for you and me. And look what he prays real quick. It says that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and I are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he prays specifically for our unity. We have communion a little bit later. Think about that. Pray about that. Okay? In Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he is able to save, meaning Jesus, completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. This is amazing. What it says is not only did Jesus, while he's on earth, pray for individuals. Not only did he pray for his disciples, 
Not only did he intercede for us, for those who would believe, but it actually says that right now in heaven, Jesus is interceding for us, for you. That's mind-blowing to me. So he models intercession and he calls us. Jesus intercedes for us and he calls us to the ministry of intercession. And I want to close with, I believe, what are three principles quickly to effective intercession. In each of these, I have verses four. And again, um, if you want to jot these down and reference them, because I'm going to move through those. Number one, intercession is fervent, focused, and ongoing. Look at Isaiah 62 and 6. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. He calls these watchmen and these aren't Soldiers who are battling it out with swords and arrows, these are prayer warriors praying for Jerusalem. And he calls them to restless intercession. Don't rest, keep praying. Relentless, fervent, ongoing, focused. Listen, God has strategically placed you in your neighborhood as a watchman. God has placed you in your family as a watchman, a watchwoman. God has placed you at your job, your place of employment as a watchman. God has placed this church here in St. Pete. I was reading the other day, less than 40% of of the folk who are residents in St. Petersburg consider themselves religious at all. And we're talking any religion. That is well below, well below the national average, which is why some organizations are actually targeting St. Petersburg for church planting. There's a reason why we see so many young churches developing around us. These organizations have identified our city as a fertile area for mission. And here we are. God has strategically put us right here. In his divine plan, your family as well. Look, I'm the only believer in my nuclear family, meaning my siblings, my mom, even uncles and aunts and cousins. I believe I've been strategically placed. I don't see that as a curse. I see it as an opportunity. So intercession, that's the first principles, fervent, focused, and ongoing. God calls us to restless intercession. You've been strategically placed. It is not a coincidence. It's not an act of fate. It is the Lord God Almighty who set you where you are as a watchman. Number two, intercession is spiritual warfare. Listen, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Listen to this. Listen to this. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Prayer, intercession, is spiritual warfare. It's one of those weapons referred to here that demolishes strongholds. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.4. Listen to the plight of our neighbors, our family members, the students I teach, my wife teaches, my colleagues at the school. Listen to this. The God of this age 
has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you see what's going on there? The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. You know what that means? Gimmicks aren't going to get it done. For there to be genuine renewal, for for there to be genuine transformation, it's got to be supernatural. God's got to do it. So it's not about how fancy your facility is. How big. It's not about what you've memorized in terms of our head knowledge. Even though, believe me, we're all for memorize as much scripture as you need to, as you can. Because God speaks as his word. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. But you know, if all you have is dead doctrine, Pharisees did that too. What distinguishes us is the power of God, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. You see? So how are we going to deal with a spiritual enemy? With spiritual warfare, prayer, prayer, intercession. You know, Billy Graham would not go into a community, any community to do a revival, unless they had called him to that community, meaning the corporate church there in that city called him. And also he would send prayer teams years, not months, years in advance to begin to organize the body of Christ to begin praying for his revivals. What about us? You see, there's a difference between a crowd and a church. Gimmicks can produce a crowd, but the Lord says, I will build my church. And for that to happen, we have to access the throne room of God. God's calling us, I'm telling you, you know he is. Thirdly, and lastly, intercession, and I just said it accesses the power of God. If you have a Bible, turn here, James chapter 5, and we're going to have communion in just a bit here, but I want you to see this, because this is in the corporate, James chapter 5, we've read, and I'm sure you, many of you have heard this verse many times, but I want you to see it, because I'm going to read from the old King James version. I think they get it with this particular section of scripture, verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one for another. There's intercession, right? That you may be healed. My version says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's the King James version. I love that. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Then it goes on to say in verse 17, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth uh, by the space of three years and six months. In verse 18, and he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. There's one man of God and the power of prayer accessing the throne of God. The effectual fervent prayer of the righteous availeth much. So let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Are you ready to battle on behalf of your family, our community, our nation, your neighbors? Are you ready? God's calling us to pray. Would you bow your heads? Lord, 
Jesus, you've put us here to do your bidding. And we dare not move out depending on our own strength. We need you. The communities around us need you. Our city, Lord God, is in desperate need. There are children, Lord, that are neglected, some abandoned, caught in a cycle of violence and poverty. Their only hope, Jesus, is you. So we lift up the children around us in need. We pray, God, families in need. We pray, God, for our leaders. We need a miracle, Lord God. But you know, we know, Lord, that you're a miracle worker. Teach us to pray. Make us into an army of intercessors, Lord. For this church, Father, I pray a special impartation of grace. Lord, that you would light a fire in our hearts. Let our hearts be like your heart for the lost, for those around us, the wounded, for our brothers and sisters in the family of God. Let us share your heart, Lord God. Jesus, Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.